So I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the wonderful name of Jesus. I've, uh, I've had an interesting morning. We have a house guest here who was a member of our Budapest church, and he heard me nearly every Sunday for 13 years. And without any attempt at humor, we were on our way to another church, and he heard me take the call, and, and he said, again, not, not trying to be funny, he said, he must really be desperate. So uh, <laughs> then when, my, when I arrived, my brother uh, told me, take as long as you want. You've got 45 minutes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to take 45 minutes, so you can relax. I'm actually going to preach from Matthew 15. Your bulletin says the text is Romans 12. I could do that, but it, it would be showing off. So I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to go to Matthew 15, but to, to set up Matthew 15, beginning in, in verse 21, I want to say something about the, the mood of the uh, nation of Israel in the first century toward Gentiles. And I want to do that uh, by looking at the famous message that the Lord delivers in his home synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4. This is, this is a preamble and an introduction to the text in Matthew 15. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but I want to set the background. I want us to feel something of the depth of the antipathy that the Jews felt toward the Gentiles. Um, Jesus comes into the synagogue, and he, he sits down, and he reads from the Isaiah scroll which was uh, Isaiah 61 as a prophecy of the messianic arrival and what he's going to do. And then Jesus said, this is about me. And they, they swell up with pride. Now, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who's almost infallible, says that when they said, well, we know the boy's family, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that was derisive. God forgive me for saying this, but I think he was wrong. I don't think it was derisive. I think they were proud. Archaeologists have only quite recently concluded that Nazareth was a muddy little village of about 50 houses in the first century. Can you imagine thinking that one of our kids is the Messiah? The, the civic pride that would accrue from that possibility? And so basically what we're saying is we know the boy's family. That's Joseph's boy. And he's making, he's causing a sensation down in Judea from little Nazareth. Think of it. And then Jesus says something that to our ears, uh, at least to my ears, would sound quite innocent. Notice verse 25. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up there, so three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, in Elijah's generation, who was Israel's biggest problem? Tell me. 
Tell me, tell me out loud. In Elijah's generation, which, what per, which personality was the biggest threat to Israel? Tell me. Okay, the king and Jezebel, his wife, who was essentially uh, a demon-worshipping pagan, who was tempting, forcing everybody else in Israel to worship demons. She was a Phoenician princess. She was from the region of Sidon. So what was Jesus pointing out? Well, the biggest threat was a woman from this neighborhood. So who does God relieve? There are all these Jewish widows who are starving to death. Who does God elect to, to rescue? Somebody who was ethnically like Jezebel. And he says, in the next generation, in Elisha's generation, there were all these lepers in Israel. Now, there was a great military flank on Israel, uh, a threat on Israel's northern flank in Syria. And one of the most dangerous commanders was a leper. So, who does God choose to heal from leprosy? It would be like in 2009, hearing that... Uh, that Osama bin Laden had pancreatic cancer and he was dying. And a Pentecostal preacher go, finds him in hiding in Afghanistan or Pakistan and heals him. How popular would that be? He was killed in 2010. What if that happened in 2009? Can you imagine what a popular move that would be? So what Jesus does after reading from the Isaiah scroll is he, uh, he just cites something that happened in Israel's history. And by the way, you know, when the, when the Jewish leader said about Jesus, you search, search, no prophet came from Galilee. Well, guess where Elijah and Elisha were from? They were from the same general region in, in northern Israel. So that was totally bogus. So here's what Jesus was saying. You're very excited because I'm a hometown boy. We had two other hometown boys who were great prophets. What did they do? So what was he showing them? He was showing them that it was in God's heart to save the Gentiles all along. God had mercy on the Gentiles all along. Now, you know what? He didn't even give commentary on that. But he didn't even say what I just said. He just showed them what was in the Bible. He just showed them the scripture that they've been reading all their lives. So then what happened? Then they tried to kill him. They took him out to a cliff, the brow of a cliff outside the city, and they tried to throw him off. He was going to let them kill him, but not yet. Now think of that. Think of how the town was turned that quickly just because Jesus showed them something that was in the Bible. Let me tell you something, friends. We all read the Bible selectively, every one of us including me, including you. And sometimes the Holy Spirit points that out to us. You're missing this verse. You're not seeing what this verse, verse means. So that's the background. Now, turn to Matthew 15, and when I say the word Matthew, let's think about this. Let's think about the secular assumption that the Gospels were contrived 
that the whole Christian movement in the first century was the product of a conspiracy. Let's foist these fables upon the Jews, and maybe not just the Jews. It didn't seem to work with the Jews, but it, maybe it'll work with the Romans. Maybe it'll work with the world. And this is the secular point of view, that this, this kind of thing never happened. This thing was made up. Well, if it were made up, something tells me it would have been made up differently. Now, because the Jews hated the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. But you know what? They hated the Samaritans worse than they hated the Gentiles. By the way, two years ago, I went to the summit conference that Harvest, or that Downline hosted at Second Press, and I, I got comfortable in my seat, and H.B. Uh, Charles came out, and he announced he was going to uh, teach on John 4, the woman of Samaria, and I thought, ah, oh, I'm not going to hear anything new here. It's very smug. And uh, because, you know, I thought, you know, I, th I taught 16 straight weeks some years ago on the woman of Samaria. And I thought, well, if there's any passage, I mean, if I get asked to preach on a Sunday morning, I could preach from John 4. So I was hardly comfortable in my seat until uh, Pastor H.B. Charles told me something I'd never heard before. I never thought about before. He said, do you realize that this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus ever had? And I thought, somehow I missed that. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. It seems obvious now that you say it, but I missed it. I knew that when she said to him, you know, we're expecting the Messiah too. The Samaritans call him the Taheb. They didn't call him the Messiah, but the Samaritans were expecting a Messiah. And she said, you know, we, we're, we also have a messianic um, expectation. We know that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, yeah, ego a me. I am. Yeah, that's me. Same thing he said in Luke 4. And by the way, that's the fullest self-disclosure. Matthew 16 comes close at Caesarea Philippi. But I would argue that John 4 is the fullest self-disclosure of the messianic identity in the Gospels. Who did he make the disclosure to? A woman who was so disreputable that even in Samaria... Nobody would go to the well with her. It's very significant that John gives us the time marker. It's high noon. Women didn't go to the well at noon. It's too hot. Women didn't go to the well alone. It was a communal activity to go to the well. Why was she there at high noon? Why was she there alone? Because nobody would go to the well with her. But he would. And he gave her the fullest self-disclosure of the messianic identity in the Bible. But boy, they hated the Samaritans. Do you know they hated somebody, a class of people, even worse than the Samaritans and the Gentiles? The Gentiles couldn't help it. They were Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I can't help it that I'm a Gentile. Samaritans couldn't help who their daddy or mama was. But the tax collectors, now they could have helped it. They were volitional traitors. And for money, they betrayed their nation to work.
for Rome. Now, the tax collectors, they hated even more than the Gentiles and Samaritans. So, if the thing is a conspiracy, if the thing is contrived, can you imagine the conspirators getting together and saying, hey, Matthew, you're a tax collector. Why don't you write the gospel to the Jews? Impossible. Impossible. Unimaginable. Why would you make a tax collector the author of the first gospel? I know most scholars think that Mark was written first, but a growing number of scholars believe Matthew was written first. And in any case, it's still the gospel to the Jews. Well, the same reason you relieve a widow who's a Phoenician. The same reason you heal a Syrian commander. It's an election of grace. It has nothing to do with merit or desert or even strategy. It's just something that God does. Okay, that's the background. Matthew 15, verse 21. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. I can barely see up here. I'm going to take off my glasses. I'm an old, old preacher. Hear the word of God. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, that's a Syrophoenician, from that region, came out and was crying, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. He did not answer her word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to ask the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Heavenly Father, show us what it means. Show us why it matters. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. About seven years ago, I was in Bratislava with a group of students. You know, um, Bratislava is the capital of Slovakia. It's on the Danube River. And then Czechoslovakia was three regions. And they, they broke up again after, or one broke off after the Soviets pulled, pulled out. There's Bohemia, where Prague is the capital. There's Moravia, where Brno is the capital. And there's Slovakia, where Bratislava is the capital. And, Bratislava, uh, and, and Slovakia broke off. And now we don't have Czechoslovakia anymore, we have the Czech Republic. And I was in Bratislava, and I was working with university students, and there were 99% Christians, and we, 
I've identified the unbeliever in the room. It was a young woman. And um, so I, I began to talk to her about the gospel and uh, about receiving Christ. And uh, she said, I can never become a Christian. And I said, well, why could you never become a Christian? And she said, because of what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 26. Now, I didn't know what Matthew 15, 26 said. I had to look it up. After I saw the verse, I understood where she was coming from. And she said, he insulted that woman. And he said, I could never follow anybody who could do that. Now, I would like to be able to boast and, and, and tell you that I gave a brilliant rejoinder on my feet and she came to Christ that night. I can't tell you that. I answered her. I addressed it as best I could. But her objection lodged in my mind and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I'm going to tell you in the next few minutes what, what I think about it. And I'm grateful to her. And I've tried to track her down since then. Don't think we've been able to find her. I have a friend called Gabriela Gazova who lives in Bratislava who's still looking for her. First of all, Jesus was getting away. I didn't look it up. I think he traveled about 80 miles east, 80 or 90 miles east. And he had left the confines of Israel. He was actually taking a little bit of a holiday. And we don't know exactly how, but a foreigner who not only found out where he was, but she knew about him. She knew what he could do. And she found him. And she approached him. She gained access to his presence. And she, she, came she came within earshot, and, and she began to cry out. She said, my, my daughter's cruelly demon-possessed. Please, I know what you have the, the power to do. Now, first of all, she called him Lord. And of course, of course, it can just mean sir. But it meant much more than that coming from her lips. Because you're not a sir who deserves my respect because you're a man or maybe you're a little older than me or you're more eminent than I am. You're somebody who can break the power of the devil. Well, who can break the power of the devil? Only God. Her theology is unformed and based on very little data, but she's off to a pretty good start, isn't she? Now, <laughs> we can only imagine what this uh, woman's life was like. So what does it mean to have a daughter, to be living with somebody, to be a caregiver to somebody who's possessed by demons? Well, it could mean that you get attacked. It could mean that you're afraid to go to sleep at night if she's not locked down or restrained. 
It could be that you're used to the vilest language imaginable because it's a demon speaking through the mouth of your daughter. It could mean that there are grotesque and provocative uh, sexual presentations or immoral behavior. It could mean any number of things. It, it certainly meant you couldn't have somebody over to tea. And it certainly meant that you couldn't just trust anybody to watch her while you went to tr go and try to find bread. Her, her life was a hell on earth because her daughter was representing the language and the ethos and the presence of hell in her household. And then she, she, she hears this man who's only in Galilee, Samaria, and Judea is in the neighborhood. Can you imagine the hope that sprung up? And so she approaches him, and she cried out to him. And when she cried out to him, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It says... In verse 23, he didn't answer her a word. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever prayed and felt like, well, you knew God was not answering, at least you couldn't tell if he was answering, but have you ever even been tempted to think, I wonder if, he, if he's even listening? I wonder if he even cares. You know, I've been praying about this for a long time. And I get nothing. The heavens are as brass. Well, it happens sometimes. It happened here. It happens because the Bible says it happened. He's omniscient from time to time. When his divine nature is exhibited. His divine nature is not always exhibited. But he certainly has access to omniscience. The end of John 2 says he knew all men. The end of John 1, he reads Nathaniel's mind. At the end of the Gospels, he reads Judas's mind. But he didn't answer her. <laughs> he, he acted like she wasn't there. So she, as she pressed her case, his disciples say in verse 23, Get her out of here. She's bothering us. Now, have you ever felt um, demotivated or, or turned away from the Christian faith by the behavior of Christians? Have you ever noticed somebody who was supposed to be uh, close to the Lord, but they were uh, personally negligent of you or abusive of you or even insulting to you has that ever happened to you it happened to her and wow what an evangelistic force the disciples were they weren't exactly missions minded were they here we are in a foreign country and this gentile is clamoring for our master, get her out of here. She won't stop praying. So she continues to press her suit. She came, well, 
no, the next thing that happens is he, he answers. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Have you ever stumbled over a piece of theology? Have you ever thought, well, I don't like that? I remember counseling with a young woman who went to maybe the most uh, evangelical Christian high school. And her mother and father are good friends of mine. And um, so they, they brought her to see me because she was rejecting the, the faith. And she said, uh, I don't like the doctrine of election. And if it's true, I don't really believe it's true, but if it is true, I'm probably not elect. She's on her third marriage right now. Not going that well. I could talk about that a long time, about how people don't want to trust God's choice, but they, they trust their choice. And the choices they make are not, are not so good. So, what an answer. He gives her a, a Romans 1.16 answer to the Jew first. It's not time. My daughter swallowing her tongue and foaming at the mouth. And you tell me you've, you've got to bring the gospel to all the, all the Jews first before you do anything for me? Well, that would be the temptation. That's what the devil would like for us to say. That's not what she, she said. Verse 25, she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me! Now, I love theology. I mean, I love theology. I never get tired of it. I relish it. But you know what? Don't worry if there's something you don't understand. There's a whole lot I don't know. As a matter of fact, I'm sure there's more that I don't understand than that I do understand. And sometimes, Christian, this is all the theology you need. Lord, help me! Lord, help me! You know what he did? He gave her more theology. And he personalized it in a way that, well, in a way that that young woman in Bratislava believed was an insult. He said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now let's talk about that. People who know Greek, I don't know Greek, but I read people who know Greek. People who know Greek tell us that uh, there are two different words for dog and koine. One is the, the street dog who feeds on scraps and you don't want to come near. And, and the other is the favored dog of the family that, who sits in your children's lap. Well, Matthew used the second dog, the pet dog, the family dog. 
that doesn't really rescue Jesus from that woman's uh, accusation because, first of all, Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. So we note it as a scholarly point, but we don't really go there. We don't camp out there. We're not satisfied with that. So let's, let's keep going. This is a little parable. He's talking about people who feed their children and then they feed their pets. This is a little parable. He didn't call her a dog. He did not call her a dog. He gave an illustration. And the illustration had something to do with sequence and order. In a parable, you can only push a parable at one point. You get into bad trouble when you try to push a parable at every point. Look at Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge and the, and the unfortunate widow. Why did he give her what she wanted? Because it was right? No, but because she wouldn't leave him alone. And Luke tells us at the beginning, he, he taught this parable so that we would always pray and never faint. But if you push it at every point, then who is the unjust judge? Well, if you push it at every point, the unjust judge is God. Well, is God an unjust judge? No. Is she a dog? No. The principle is sequence and order, God's order. The third thing I want to say is that she didn't feel insulted. As a matter of fact, she was encouraged by what he said. She saw an opening, and she ran into it. She took God's word, and everything he said was God's word, because he is the Son of God. She took God's word, and she built her case on what she believed was a promise in the word of God. Philip Melanchthon, Luther's great protege, said, Christians don't live on explanations. They live on promises. And what that Slovakian student thought was an insult, the woman whom she believed was insulted saw promise. And she pled the promise. And she said, great, Lord, that's great. But you know, the dogs, they get the crumbs from the children's table. All I'm asking for are the crumbs. Lord, give me the crumbs. Now, I'm going to try to talk about what comes next without crying. I'm very emotional. And uh, I mean, I cry during card tricks, okay? It doesn't take much for me. And I'm, I'm going to try to get through this. <laughs> so bear with me if I can't, if I can't. but I'm, I'm going to try. I started to look this up in the Greek. I'm, I'm going to butcher it. I'd already given my smartphone to my friend over there. Uh, at this point, it's pretty dramatic in the Greek. It's something like 
Gunai or Gunaikai, Hamagali, Tapistus. Woman, great is your faith. You win. Did he insult her? Can you imagine in your life? Can you imagine hearing those words from the Son of God? Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ looking at you and calling you by name and saying, great is your faith? Can you imagine that? Let me ask you a question. Would you feel insulted? Um, now, I'm, I have to say this very reverently. So, so catch the reverence in it. Because you, you could interpret this in a way that it's almost blasphemous. One reason that I know that Jesus was the Son of God is because I know what people in their early 30s know, because I've been in my early 30s. And I also know what fishermen know, because the second church we pastored was started, started in the living room of a commercial fisherman on the North Carolina coast, a man who later worked on the water. He guided, he guided ships into the harbor. He's a harbor pilot. And I know that people in their 30s couldn't say what Jesus of Nazareth said, and I know that fishermen couldn't have made it up and put it in his mouth. I know that for a fact. And the brains trust of religious Israel would get together and contrive questions that they knew he couldn't answer, questions that they knew would trap him. And every time, every time, every time, every time, he trapped them. And that's impossible. It's like a chess player going up against the most sophisticated computer in the world. It doesn't matter how good the chess player is. He can't do it against the computer. And one thirty-something couldn't do it against the collective rabbis of Israel in the aggregate. That's impossible. But Jesus did it. And he won every argument except for this one. Spurgeon was a great man. And um, he didn't take any money for his sermons, but he was a wealthy man because, uh, excuse me, he didn't take any money as a pastor. He didn't take any money from his church, but he was a wealthy man because he sold his sermons, and his sermons were translated into like 30 languages. And they were, so, they were published worldwide in newspapers in something called the Penny Pulpit. And he had this um, spacious grounds. First, he lived in a beautiful place called uh, Helensboro House or Helensburg House, and then he moved to a, a larger, more capacious, more impressive place called Westwood, and and he was glad, and he, he enjoyed it, and he enjoyed his grounds. And he was, stole, he, was, he was strolling in his grounds one day, and he noticed that an old cur dog, that first kind of dog, not the second kind of dog, had somehow broken through the hedge and was romping on 
Spurgeon's manicured grounds. And he found a pretty good-sized stick, a little piece of a tree limb, and he threw it at the dog as hard as he could. And that dog took that branch in his teeth and ran toward Spurgeon, wagging his tail, and dropped the branch right in front of him and looked up, wagging his tail. And you know what, you know what Spurgeon said? He conquered me. He conquered me. Well, I say this reverently. I say this reverently. She conquered him. Now, how did she conquer him? The same way the, that Jacob conquered the angel in Genesis 32. Angel was a mama's boy. He hung out in the kitchen. It was his brother who was the athlete. In the Old Testament, one angel killed 185,000 Syrian soldiers in one stroke. How could Jacob win a wrestling match with an angel in Genesis 32? There's only one explanation. Because the angel wanted him to win. That's why. How did the Syrophoenician woman win the debate with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he wanted her to win. And because if he had granted her request immediately, we would never have known how great her faith was. We would never have known what she fought through. She fought through his silence. She fought through his negligence, apparent negligence. She fought through the theology. She fought through the appearance of a personal insult. She fought through, and she trusted him, and she cried out to him, and he gave her what she wanted. And for 2,000 years, the confessing church has agreed with its Savior, instead of that woman, wow, how great was her faith. And one day you'll meet her, Christian. You'll know who she is when you see her. And you'll see, how great was your faith? You were a model to me. Did he insult her? He exalted her. He made her a model. As he did with every woman. As he did like no one else. In the first century. I get so tired of people dissing scripture. And talking about how the Bible has been used to defend racism. Do you know there's no other example of anything from the ancient world. That comes down to us as a defiance and a condemnation and a damnation of racism greater than the story of the Good Samaritan. Nothing comes close. Jesus exalted the downtrodden. And he exalted not just a woman, but a Syrophoenician woman. 
think of it that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is perfect. And you've let us know it. You've let us listen in on him. You've let us see him. You have introduced him to us. And Lord, we thank you that that woman's faith was great. And we thank you that one day you'll enter, introduce her to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.